mourning and grieving because it appears to us that the wicked are prospering and that there remains no hope for your people. Father, help us to see your mighty hand. Train us uh, to see the works of your providence all around us. Uh, Train us to, to discern from creation itself and certainly from your holy word of, about your goodness, about your steadfast love, about your covenant faithfulness to your people. Help us in, through the testimonies of Esther and Mordecai, and even the testimony of your enemies, that you are a good and gracious God who always accomplishes your, pur- your purposes and you always work things together for the good of your people. We ask this for Christ's name's sake. Amen. Well, so far in the book of Esther, we, we've been seeing how God rules and governs all things. And, and even when we don't see that, even when that's not immediately apparent to us, and, and one of the, the remarkable things about the book of Esther is that the name of God isn't mentioned anywhere. There's not even a, a recording of a direct intervention, an immediate intervention of, of God in the life of his people. So we've been working through Judges and the Lord's Day sermons. We, we see how God intervenes. His spirit fills someone. We're told explicitly those things. Esther, it's not, it's not the case. So there's this theme running through the book of Esther of, of hiddenness. And even Esther's name has, has connotations of, of hidden, of re- concealed. And chapter, un- chapter 3, as we looked at it last week, unfolds for us the serpent's plan to kill, to pursue the seed of the woman. So we see this cosmic battle that's behind in the scenes. And, and we see this wicked man named Haman, who by his manipulation persuades the king to issue this decree to kill, to to annihilate, and to destroy all the Jews in the entire kingdom. And the chapter comes to a close. If this were a play, the curtain would come down at that scene, and right there as the curtain closed, we would see Ahasuerus and Haman sitting down over cocktails, enjoying the, their imagined plot and, and it coming to pass exactly 11 months later. Then chapter 4, the curtain opens again. Chapter 4 opens up. And it opens with now this decree having gone out, and we get to see how this is being received throughout the kingdom. In every province in the kingdom among the Jews, and they're weeping, they're mourning in sackcloth and ashes, they're, they're calling out to the Lord. And we find out also that Mordecai comes to know not only about the decree that's gone out, but what's happened behind the scenes, even to the point of the detail of how much money Haman has contributed to the king's treasury as sort of a, of a down payment or a guarantee that the plot will go forward. He sort of uses his money and his appeals to this prideful king's sense of self, his sense of self-exaltation, with a hefty infusion into the king's treasury to seal the deal. And now we find Mordecai along with all the Jews, weeping and mourning and fasting. But somehow in the midst of all of this, the news of this hasn't reached the queen's chamber. Esther's unaware of what's going on. She hasn't, this decree has gone out to every corner of the kingdom, and yet here in the center of the kingdom, in Esther's chamber, she hasn't heard. She doesn't know about this. But she kind of, I guess, perceives either looking out and seeing Mordecai in the gates or by some news coming to her, 
not about the decree, but about Mordecai's mourning and weeping. And so she sends word to Mordecai inquiring about that. We'll read that in just a moment. But when, she, when Esther learns about this decree and she learns about the, the, terif- the, the terrifying prospects for her people, she is suddenly forced into a choice. I mean, here's this young woman who all we know about her so far is her beauty, her charm, her, her various ways of, of attract, being attractive to the king. And, and we learn about just, we just see her sort of drifting or floating along in the current of Persian culture. That's all we have know of, of Esther so far. And But chapter 4 marks a turning point for her. No longer is she the passive young woman. She has to take a stand. And from here, she begins to call the shots. And it's really a fascinating development in her character. So it's a turning point, not only in the story itself, but in the character, the person of Esther. And, you know, the, the life of every Christian is, is ultimately going to be marked by such choices. There are points, sometimes there are little things. Maybe it's not as monumental as all of your people are going to be destroyed unless you stand up. But there are ordinary, everyday choices that Christians make. Am I going to stand for the truth? Or am I going to prefer self-preservation? Am I going to seek to protect myself and protect my own? Or am I willing to put myself at risk for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the truth of God's word? And and I, I, I think we ought to pray, particularly for our young people, that the Lord would, in his providential care, would, would bring them to a point of having to make that decision. Up till this point, Esther has simply done whatever her uncle Mordecai has told her to do. But there comes a point now where Mordecai's faith has to be Esther's faith. Esther has to take a stand on her own. And, say, and, and our, our young people have to take a stand. There has to come a point where it's not only just the faith of my father or the faith of my mother, but this Savior is my Savior. Christ is mine. And I am his. This faith is my faith, and I'm willing to pay a cost for it. We ought to pray that our young people would, would make such a decision, that they, the Lord would lead them to a point. And it may be hard to see, maybe hard to witness as parents, the kind of hardship that the Lord may bring that causes our, our sons and our daughters to say, I'm going to take a stand here. I'm willing to, I'm, I'm willing to allow it to cost me in order to live for the Lord. You know, when we, in our ordinary lives, when we stand up for morality and ethics in our workplaces, when there's a temptation with a customer, a vendor, a boss, to ask us to compromise, and it seems subtle enough, it seems harmless enough, are we willing to take a stand and say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to pay a price, even losing my job, for the sake of truth. In our extended families, when, when there's some discussion or some, some immorality going on, are we willing to stand and say, this is wrong, and I'm willing to pay a price for that? Among our, our friendships, among our, in, within our, our church, when there are moments of, of crisis, are we willing to, to stand up and step into a brother or sister's hardship, their suffering, and say, you know what? This may very well cost me. It may cost me time. It may cost me money. It may cost me emotional harm by, by investing myself in a brother or sister in this way. Am I willing to do that? 
Am I willing to make that choice for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his people? You know, there's no, no limit, I, I don't think, on, on the, the number and kind of scenarios that we could, we could probably come up with. We could spend the rest of the time together just coming up with potential scenarios where, where our, our ethics are challenged, our morality is challenged, uh, our, our willingness to do the right thing is challenged, and here's the potential cost that we have to pay. And sometimes we're tempted to elevate in our minds. You know, a psychologist might call this catastrophizing. But we, in our mind, we would elevate the potential harm that would come greater than it really is. But this is not the case with Esther. And it was a legitimate harm, and we'll see that she recognizes that. So the question that that Esther chapter 4 sort of presses upon us is, do we stand in faith upon the promises of our Savior who has promised never to leave us or forsake us, or do we seek to protect ourselves, to deliver ourselves? And that's really the issue that comes up. And as I, as I prepare to read the text, I mean, it's, it's a fairly, relatively short chapter. It kind of falls out in, in sort of three movements. And we're meant to feel, as, as the chapter unfolds, the tension building. If there were a musical score accompanying the, the chapter, the music would build. As, as the chapter goes on, the tension would build because Esther comes to an inflection point. She comes to a place of having to choose. But it begins with Mordecai learning about the plot. That's the first paragraph. And, and how the word of this decree goes to all the kingdom. And then the, the second movement, the second paragraph, is Esther seeks out Mordecai trying to find out what's, what's wrong with him, what's going on with him, why Mordecai is so grieved. And then... The last paragraph shows us this exchange with Mordecai and Esther where she ultimately agrees to serve and help her people. So let's read the text. Let's see if the Lord will help us to see his kindness here, but also to see how this chapter points us specifically to Christ and to his sacrificial work. Hear the word of God. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, just stop and think for a second. Allow your, your sanctified imagination to sort of enter into this circumstance. Uh, you're, you're a father, you're a mother, you're a teenager in, in the land of Persia under the rule of Ahasuerus, and this king has, this decree has come. It's a certain irrevocable decree that in 11 months, you and all of your family and all of your loved ones, men and women, boys and girls, are going to be killed, rounded up and executed. Verse 4 tells us, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree 
issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther that what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and, command, and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And then are they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told him, told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So we see a flip here. We see at first Mordecai sending word and commanding Esther, and by the end we see Esther giving the orders. It's a significant flip. It's a significant shift. Mordecai's command to Esther, go and appeal to the king. And this decisive moment for Esther presses the question upon her, is she going to help her people, or is she going to seek to protect herself? And Mordecai wisely anticipates the temptation that Esther is surely going to face. He anticipates that, and he says, and this is his language here echoes Moses in Deuteronomy many, many times when Moses would say to the people of God, do not think in your heart, for example, that you are of more worth than the people that you're casting out in and of yourself. Do not think in your heart is because your own righteousness that God has give, is giving your enemies into your hand. Don't think that way. Well, in a similar way, Mordecai sort of channeling Moses, as it were, says, do not think that you will escape harm simply because you're in the palace. Now, we know up until this point, Esther has hidden her ethnic identity. Her, the king, her own husband, doesn't know that she's a Jewess. And, but Mordecai is reminding her, that's not going to be kept hidden. So Mordecai has a strong understanding of, of the fact that the scriptures reveal to us that all things are going to be laid bare at some point. Those things are not going to remain hidden. Now, at this point, we might be tempted to overestimate the favor that Esther has with the king. Because what we've so, seen so far is how the king was just floored and overwhelmed with her beauty, her charm, and the king, of course, after probably a thousand women had come night by night by night to him, Esther comes and the search is over. I've found my queen. And, and he just lavishes praise upon her so that we may be tempted to think, well, what's she worried about? She's got this, this unassailable, unimpeachable relationship with her dear, sweet, kind husband. And why would, why would any wife be afraid to come into her husband and ask him for a favor? 
All she needs to do is employ her her feminine charms, and surely she will be received. And and what we we have a couple of hints though. One going back to chapter two, we have to look back that far to see there's a hint here that we shouldn't overestimate how influential na- on her own, naturally speaking, that Esther is. Back in chapter two and verse nineteen, there's this little, or I'm sorry, eighteen. No, 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 no. Where am I? It's 19, sorry, 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. Now, why is that there? Uh, There's a dear brother that has gone to be with the Lord by the name of Ron Baines that, remember listening to his preaching, especially in the Old Testament, he would always ask, why are we being told this? are being told this so there was already a gathering of virgins and and esther was was you know won the beauty pageant she was crowned queen well now after that in fact it looks as though it's several years later there's another gathering of virgins and it's just kind of dropped there that little it's 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 like hansel and gretel that little crumb has been dropped along the path what's it there for i think now we're encouraged to look back and realize Ahasuerus's wondering eye has not gone away. He still kind of likes having his harem. I mean, Ahasuerus will never be what our Bibles call a one-woman man. And this is a reminder that Esther still has this sort of competition, that she's easily replaced. I mean, just as the previous queen, Vashti, could be replaced, so too could Esther. But also, Esther herself says, you know, it's been a month. She tells her uncle, it's been a month since I've been called to see the king. I mean, we're not as close maybe as you think we are. But then also, Esther tells us, reminds Mordecai, there's but one law. For anyone who goes in to the king uninvited, there's but one law. It's death. I mean, it's no small thing to show up knock on the king's door, and you aren't invited. Unless the king just graciously decides to extend the royal scepter to you, the golden scepter, and and by that way give permission, the only law, and the law of the Medes and Persians is irrevocable. The law is death. But we're going to see now, as Esther goes from this young woman who swims with the flow of Persian culture, she now becomes a woman of action. We're going to see her take charge and even order Mordecai. Alexander McLaren, in his exposition of this passage, makes this insightful comment. He says, note that Esther does not refuse. So Mordecai tells her, you need to go to the king. Esther doesn't refuse. She simply puts the case plainly as if she invited further communication. This is how things stand. Do you still wish me to run the risk? In other words, there's a very high likelihood I will die if I do this. Do you want me to do it? That is, that is poor courage which has shut its eyes in order to keep itself up to the mark. You understand that? It's poor courage. If we've basically just kind of closed, going, la, 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 I'm not going to listen to the actual risk, and I'm going to go ahead. He said, that's not courage. That's not really courage. Unfortunately, the temperament, he goes on, which clearly sees dangers, and that which dares them are not often found together in due, in due proportion. So, and so men are over rash 
or overcautious. This young queen, with her clear eyes, saw and with her brave heart was ready to face peril to her life. Unless we fully realize difficulties and dangers beforehand, our enthusiasm for great causes will ooze out at our fingers' ends at the first rude assault of these. So let us count the cost before we take up arms, and let us take up arms after we have counted the cost. Cautious courage, courageous caution are good guides. Either alone is a bad one. Courage without prudence is a bad guide. But Mordecai and and then Esther end up serving to us as a a picture of, of resolute faith even in the midst of exceeding sorrow, of exceeding fear, extreme anxiety. Mordecai and Esther stand firm on their knowledge. And I think the, the text shows us, and particularly the exchange that we see in that last paragraph, starting in verse 12, this exchange between uh, Esther's messenger and Mordecai's messenger. We see this exchange going back and forth. And what comes out is that Esther and Mordecai both understand the good character of God. They understand something about the character of their God. Despite their circumstances, they're willing to look to, to, to the world around them, to common grace, but also look to the scriptures and see God is good. But the second thing they know is they know God's covenant promises to Israel. And I think that shows up, and I'll read this in a moment, this is showing up that, that Mordecai seems to be appealing to Joel chapter 2. He knows the word of God. He knows the promises of God. But thirdly, they understand that God sovereignly rules all things according to a decree that he made in eternity. This isn't, God's not making this up as he goes along. And Mordecai and Esther know that. God's not merely responding to their circumstances. God has decreed and is actively governing all things that will come to pass. And these foundations show up when Mordecai says in verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, listen to what he says, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. You see his faith? I mean, you see the certainty? This is, God's going to deliver us. He perhaps will use Esther. Perhaps he'll use another. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, in Joel chapter 2, listen and and, and hear the parallels. Hear with your own ears how this parallels. In Joel chapter 2, beginning of verse 12, the prophet says, Yet even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Now that's exactly word for word the same phrase that we find in Esther chapter 4. And it's the only place in the Old Testament that that phrase occurs in the same way. Return to me with your heart and with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and tear your heart and not your garments. Now, return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting concerning evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for Yahweh your God. Who knows? And, and so Mordecai seems to be appealing to the very word of God here, showing his understanding of God's covenant faithfulness, 
showing that I, I know the promises of God. And God has commanded us to respond to him with fasting, weeping, and wailing. That's what we're doing. And, and Mordecai is urging the Jews to render their hearts, not just merely their garments, but to, to tear their hearts open before the Lord. And who knows? Esther, the Lord may relent. Who knows, Esther? The Lord may choose to use you. Now, he's not, he's not a prophet. Mordecai's not testifying this is going to happen. He says this is consistent with the character of God. God has said if his people will humble himself before them. God has said. Mordecai doesn't even know 1 John 1, 1.9 yet but he believes the promise that's there. If you will confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Even before John ever spoke, Mordecai's believing that and saying, Esther, this is, this is the time. This, is, this, is, this may be your time that God has placed you here. We, have, we didn't know. I mean, imagine yourself as Mordecai trying to communicate through a third party to, to your niece Esther, have you ever wondered how it is? I mean, I love you. You're, you're my, my favorite niece. But, I mean, of all the girls in the kingdom, for, Lord to, for, for Ahasuerus to pick you, have you ever wondered how that happened? Why that took place as it did? I mean, how the peasant girl, the peasant Hebrew girl, became queen of all the land? Have you ever stopped and thought, why has that happened? And maybe this is it. Maybe this is why. Esther, will you stand up? Will you, will, you, will you believe these promises? And Mordecai is, 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 seems to be certain of God's steadfast love to his people, and he believes that this deliverance is going to come, whether through the hands of Esther, the actions of Esther, or through the actions of another. He believes that God's covenant promises are going to stand one way or the other. And he believes that God so rules and governs the whole world that he's able and he's willing to deliver his people. Listen to this comment by David Strain in his commentary. He says, The book of Esther is a small room in the center of which sits a huge elephant, never mentioned, yet obvious to all. The elephant in the room is, of course, the presence and sovereign grace of Almighty God. And here in Esther chapter 4, particularly in verse 14, the elephant that had been sitting meekly in the room now shuffles over to sit right in our laps. It's a graphic image, isn't it? Or a vivid image. The elephant that's been sitting meekly over in the corner, as elephants do, trying to main, maintain it, be inconspicuous, right? As elephants always are. And now he comes and plops down in your lap. If we hadn't noticed it before, Strange says, we can't miss it now. Look at Mordecai's words in verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Mordecai and, and Esther are learning in real time. They're learning together a glorious truth that every Christian has to know and has to, to rest within. Every circumstance, every event in all of the world, in all of life, in all of history is sovereignly decreed in eternity for the glory of God and for the good of his people. We have to understand this. We have to rest in it. And this is where the temptation comes to open up all of chapter 3 in our, our confession of faith, but I won't do that. In, in chapter 3, it's, it's, the, it's the chapter entitled, Of God's Decree. And this is foundational for, you know, in, in our, our confession of faith, we began with the doctrine of the scriptures, by which we know certainly, sufficiently, and infallibly all that's necessary for, for man to be reconciled with God and to walk in obedience before him. And then chapter 2 unfolds for us what 
a summary of what the Bible teaches to us, about what creation teaches to us about the nature of our God and all of his triune glory. And then chapter 3, again, foundational, says that this triune God in eternity, before the heavens were made, before the earth was made, that he decreed all things infallibly, perfectly, all things that would come to pass. It's not merely that God looked ahead and, and, and saw what was going to happen and saw all the infinite permutations of all the choices and things that could happen, and then God decreed based on what he foresaw. Though it's he, he predetermined. He foreordained these things. And Mordecai understands this. He grasps this. Maybe only just a little, but he grasps it. That God has ordered all events in history. And Esther, this may be the moment where God uses us. Now, Mordecai doesn't say it depends upon us. He doesn't say, Esther, the entire fate of your people rests upon your shoulders. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, God's going to deliver whether he uses you or something else, someone else. He's going to do this. In chapter or paragraph one of chapter three in our confession, it says, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Well, that's a comprehensive statement if ever there was one. All things, freely, unchangeably, whatsoever comes to pass, God has decreed it. So what, what are the exceptions to that statement? There are none. It's an absolute decree. Yet, they're already anticipating the objection, but, but, but what about this? Yet, so is thereby God is neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Now, there's, there's some complexities in the paragraph, but, but essentially... It's, 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 it's arguing, it's, it's asserting from the scriptures that God has is, is ruled and governed all things. He's working everything out perfectly according to his decree. Now that doesn't undo the individual choices that you and I make. But actually it establishes those as necessary. And, and so we have squarely upon our shoulders the responsibility of our own decisions, and yet we also have the confidence that God works through our decisions and every other decision, good and bad ones. Righteous ones and evil ones. And he's using all of those to work out his decree. The, the, we're introduced to this language of first and second causes. And God, of course, is the first cause of everything. God is, is, is the one in whom we have life and breath and being. If God were not actively put, holding the, the molecules in this desk together, it would all disintegrate. It is by the word of Christ that all things are upheld, that everything consists and has its being. God is not, cannot be passive by his very nature. It's by the word of Christ that all things continue to exist. So, and, and because of that and because of God's decree, he is considered the first cause of everything, but he is not the author of evil. He's never the author of sin. He doesn't have fellowship in sin. And yet he uses those free choices, even the evil choices. And of course you can see um, very clearly, for example, in the life of Joseph, 
and that, that famous statement there in Genesis chapter 3, where Joseph, after, after dad has died, after Jacob has died, Joseph responds to his brothers who are now in fear that Joseph's now going to kill us. He was only allowing us. He was only being gracious to us because of dad. And now that dad is gone, we're really going to get it. And they knew they deserved it. And Joseph agreed with them that they deserved it. But Joseph says, what you intended, what you meant for evil, God has intended for good to bring about the deliverance of this many people this day. So he recognized this doctrine of God's decree and God's providence, which is the, the God's rule in creation to work out his decree in time and in history. So we, we see this being worked out, and, and now Esther is what the theologians would call a second cause. Will she or won't she? God's decree doesn't depend upon her, but he uses her. You know, we could illustrate it this way. A farmer is, is dependent, utterly dependent upon the rain and the sun and God, the first cause to cause the seed to grow. He plant, as Jesus talked about, the, the, the grain of wheat goes into the ground. Unless it dies, it doesn't live again, and it comes up out of the ground. But it is by God's gracious work that that grain grows. But the, fa- the farmer doesn't just sit beside his warm hearth and pray that the Lord will fill his barns. There's a means. One of the concepts that Sam Renahan, it was one of those kind of duh kind of things. He was talking about the, the, the means, which in, in Latin is media, or medium or media, and the, the, that refers to the middle. We have, we have God's decree before the, the foundations of the earth were laid. and We know the end. We know what's going to happen in the end. What's the middle? That's us. That's, that's our decisions. That's our responsibility to obey Christ and what he's commanded us to do. Listen to, to David Strain again. He says, here is the proper use of, the doc- of this doctrine of divine sovereignty. It is not a theological bludgeon with which to beat other Christians. It is not a shibboleth by which to test for orthodoxy. See, we've studied Jephthah last week. We know what a shibboleth is, don't we? It is a refuge in which to rest secure, a safe harbor in which to anchor your faith amidst every trial, a hiding place in the storm. Mordecai knows that God, because he is Lord over all things, utterly and comprehensively and exhaustively sovereign, will not, cannot fall, fail to keep his promises and uphold his covenant. Relief and deliverance will arise from another quarter. The sovereignty and faithfulness of God is the scriptural medicine for the disease of fear. I'm going to read that again. Sovereignty, the sovereignty and faithfulness of God is the scriptural medicine for the disease of fear. You kill the germ of anxiety with a hefty dose of divine sovereignty. Mothers and sisters, your life rests in the hand of the God of infinite faithfulness, goodness, and grace, and you could not be safer or more secure. It's good, isn't it? Esther's learning this. See, this point of of crisis comes, and here's this young woman who's having to learn this. It's no longer Mordecai's faith. It's hers. She has to rest upon this. It's through our knowledge of the character and the eternal decree of Almighty God that we can stand, that we can stand with courage in the day of distress. And, And Esther's willingness to risk her own life and, and to do it in a way that would be publicly humiliating. I mean, to have an order of execution issued by your own husband. It's not just her death. It's, it's the shame that goes with that. But Esther's willingness to risk all those things for the sake of her people 
should point our minds immediately to the life of our Savior, his life, his atoning death. So Esther chapter 4 is not just a a morality play in which we we say, well, we ought to imitate Esther in her faithfulness and her 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 belief in the promises of God and willingness to act upon that. It's more than just a, a, a morality, uh, a moral example. It, it is that, certainly. And we are right and legitimate to point to Esther and say, this, this is, this is a, a commendable example for us. But it is more than that. It points us to the sacrificial death of our Savior. And this is exactly what the Apostle Peter did. You remember his sermon at Pentecost, where he lays out sort of a short history of Israel and all the rebellion and all the stubbornness and all the rejection of the prophets and, and all of God's testimony to his people. And, and Peter comes to the, to the real punch in the sermon. And he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, this is what he says, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This is, this is glorious, isn't it? And, and Peter understood. This, is, this was the predetermined plan and counsel of God from before the foundations of the world. There was never a time when this decree did not exist. We think of sometimes of eternity as like eternity past and eternity present. Eternity is not linear. Our, 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 our created time is linear. There was never a, I'm going to use air quotes, time when the decree of God did not exist. That Jesus would come at a predetermined time, which is created, and give himself as a ransom for many. And Peter understood this. He said, this, was, this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet he points to what? Human responsibility. But you, and you, you almost see his finger pastorally going at you men, in collaboration with, in conspiracy with wicked and lawless men, you crucified the Savior that God had testified about through the prophets for generations, and then he comes, he gives more testimony through signs and miracles and wonders, along with his Old Testament word, and you killed him. And all this was according to God's plan. All this was according to God's eternal decree, that Christ would die, but he would be raised by God victorious, and he would be exalted to the Father's right hand. And we see, in a sense, another parallel here, Esther is is facing this decision. If I go before the king and I am not extended the royal scepter, I will die. On that Friday. The Ancient of Days did not extend the golden scepter to Christ. He died. But on the third day, the scepter is extended. And he rises victorious. He's accepted. He's received back to the right hand of God the Father. He's exalted. He's given a name above every name. And, and Christ himself comes to that, that point of decision. We see that in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's weeping tears of blood. Father, if, there's, if it's possible, let this cup pass me by. 
if there's any other way. I mean, according to his humanity, Christ is crying out in this manner, but he knows, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He gives himself as a ransom for all of his people. A people, by the way, who are under a decree of utter destruction. Eternally. One commentator makes this, this observation that Esther's fast that she called upon began on the first day of Passover, which corresponds to the day of Christ's crucifixion. And he says it's striking that the three days of Esther's fast begun at Passover were the same three days in the annual calendar as the days of Jesus' humiliation on the cross and in the grave. For Esther, the fast was a symbolic death. For Jesus, the cross was a literal death. And we see this, the, the glory of Christ here underneath in the backdrop behind the story of Esther. And this becomes really the source of our own hope, doesn't it? In the midst of fear, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of a, of a feeling of, of impending doom, that God has decreed all things that will come to pass. Infallibly, unfailingly, God's decree is going to come to pass. What has he decreed? That, 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 that's immediately important to us as believers. He's decreed that he will ultimately preserve us for eternity. He has not decreed that we will not experience hardship or suffering now. But he has decreed that we will be glorified with him, that we will, we will rejoice victorious in him and with him for all of eternity. That's the decree. We know that's certainly going to come to pass. Now, all the other streams that flow in and out of God's providence between the decree and between the end, we don't know. There's a lot in the middle. And, and there's much in the middle for which we are responsible to act according to God's commands. But this is the source of our hope. Including, God has decreed all things from eternity, including the death of his own son. And so now, knowing that all things are going to come to pass, surely and certainly, for the praise of God's name, and also for the good of his church, doesn't that give us boldness to stand? And, I, and you've probably heard me say this before. When Jesus said to his disciples, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the soul and to cast you into eternity. And Jesus says something phenomenal. We know we are made body and soul. We, are, we have two parts. We have a material part and an, inner part, and a, and an immaterial part, what call, Paul calls the outer man and the inner man, the soul and the body. The best that our enemies, or the worst that our enemies can do to us is kill half of us and only that temporarily. All they can do is kill our body. They cannot touch the immaterial. They cannot touch the eternal. And even our bodies will one day rise apart from their corruption. So the best they can do is a temporary death of half of us. And, and Esther's having to, to face that. Gregory says in his commentary, he says, whatever the defining moment we can act with conviction and courage by saying, I too will cast myself into the hands of my God. For these are the hands that have already received the cup of bitterness in the Garden of Gethsemane. These are the hands that have already taken up the nails on the cross of Calvary. These are the hands that have already been at work underneath me and around me and beside me so that I might respond with courage and conviction in this very moment and say, who knows? 
this place, this time, this situation, this position, maybe, just maybe, God has placed me right where I am for just such a time as this. It's the source of our courage. This is the gospel hope that God has given to us. But there's, there's another part of our gospel hope, too, though. Maybe you've already felt this. What if you've failed to stand boldly? What if that day of testing came and you folded like a cheap tent? What if you compromised? Where's the hope for you? The hope for you is that Christ has done in your stead what you could not do. The hope is that Christ has faced that moment of temptation and perfectly, completely, infallibly fulfilled the word of God. He stood perfectly by the Spirit's power and fulfilled all that the Father had given him to do. And and if you are in Christ, then all of the perfect merits of Christ's atoning work, all of his obedience, all of the perfection of his law-keeping and his perfect walk before the Lord is yours by faith. the, The coin of the gospel has two sides, and, and one of it is that our sins are forgiven, that we are, we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Praise be to God for that. But the other side of the coin is that we are also granted the full righteousness of Christ. So the gospel is great hope for those who are, by God's grace, experiencing courage in the midst of, of a temptation to flee and to protect and to seek to preserve yourself. But it's also great hope. Not if... Let's be honest, not if, but when we compromise. It's great hope for when we fail to stand as we ought to fail, as we ought to stand. We there, even in those circumstances, we look to the one who did not shrink back, the one who has borne all of our sin, even the sin of cowardice, even the sin of self-protection, even the sin of compromise. We see this, of course, illustrated almost immediately in the life of Peter, don't we? Jesus had told them the night of his betrayal, one of you is going to betray me. And of course, you can imagine that scene sitting around the table and they're all looking at one another, who's, who's this going to be? And, and, and they're all asking, Lord, is it me? Is it me? But not Peter. Peter says, it's not me. Lord, which one of these other fools is it going to be? I will go, to you. I will go even to death for you. And can you imagine the eyes of Christ looking at Peter? Peter, I love you. I prayed for you. But you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Can you imagine? I think it's Mark's gospel. It's Luke. I can't remember which, which. Tells us that right as the rooster crows, Peter looks across the courtyard and catches his Savior's eyes. Can you imagine? And yet John 21 shows us how the word patiently, lovingly, tenderly restores Peter, even from his betrayal. And says, Peter, go feed my sheep. Go feed them. Now that you've been humbled, now that you're useful, now that you've experienced failure. And he tells something that may not seem hopeful to us, but he tells Peter he's going to be crucified one day. And Peter's excited about that. Now, what kind of perverse thinking is that? Peter's being told by the Lord, this time you will stand. This time you won't shrink back. And it will one day cost you your life. But by my grace and by the power of my spirit, you will be faithful. 
And that's the promise, saints, given to all of us. Not because of our own strength. Not even because of the grace that God is working in us to produce strength. But because of his strength, his steadfastness, we will all be preserved. If you're in Christ, you will not ultimately fail. You will be preserved. You will be saved to the very end. That's good news, isn't it? Well, I haven't left much time for questions. I warned you. Don't say you weren't warned. But are there, briefly, any, any, any questions about Esther 4? Yeah. It's the very last book of narrative history. And, and so this is the, in a sense, near the, the closing chapter of God's revelation about his people under the Old Covenant. It's fascinating to think about, isn't it? Yeah. Four hundred years of silence from God. Amen. Well, let's pray. We'll take a short, short break before our worship. Father, we're so thankful for your mercy to us. We're thankful for your loving kindness. We're thankful for your steadfast love. We thank you for your goodness. We're understanding the fact of your eternal decree understanding the, the fact of your sovereign rule and governance of all things would, would not be of any comfort at all to our souls if we did not believe that you were good, if we did not believe that you were gracious to your people, if we believe that you are a, guard, a God that meant to us harm, it would be no comfort to us that you rule and govern all things. So we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We, we thank you that you have testified about yourself, that you delight to show mercy. We thank you that you've testified to yourself, about yourself, through the person and work of Christ, that you are infinitely compassionate towards your people, that you delight to receive us as sons and daughters, and that heaven rejoices over our repentance. And we thank you for those sure promises. We ask that we will respond in gratitude and in boldness for the sake of our faith, for the sake of our King, and for the good of his people. Amen.